Okay, well, well, I'll uh, make a start. Um, haven't got that microphone first, but we can, we can manage that. Um, I'd like to, to start by actually asking you all to dig a little deeper into this um, freemium business model area. This was something that the OU was keen on a few years ago, and, and uh, indeed we had sort of five, four or five different business models that we're going to develop, one being, you know, business as usual, another being a new model for international education, uh, another being, you know, partnership-based. And we had premium, um, OU premium in there. And we had a product that was uh, going to be the flagship part of it, um, social learn. And the idea of social learn at that time was there would be... Uh, kind of an Amazon marketplace for educational services, a platform through which free resources could be delivered, but also paid for resources, uh, services such as tutoring and assessment. Um, and this would be both the uh, OU providing these, but also it would be open to others, and, and the OU would take a commission. Um, but uh, that's sort of gone quiet. I, I'm not sure whether it was a loss of nerve. I mean, Social learn has proceeded, but, but without the marketplace uh, elements uh, and indeed the, the whole area of advertising on um, uh, open learn and the uh, media website has been dropped as well. It's worth saying, though, that, of course, what does work extremely well for us in the OU um, is recruitment of students through open media and, and the value of the students that are recruited here exceeds the cost of uh, maintaining open learn by a factor of something like four. That's partly because obtaining new students for the OU is a relatively expensive operation because we're trying to appeal to you know, the entire population. Uh, so the, the cost per newly acquired student at the OU may be somewhat higher than other universities. But nevertheless, you know, that's, that's become a no-brainer for us, really, uh, that um, open media... Uh, is an extremely effective way to recruit students to um, OU courses. Um, but can I ask each of you to say a little bit more about, you know, in your areas, what do you think uh, a premium business model might look like for you um, and how, you know, how viable uh, is it to, uh, to move to? Um, spot the, the eye falling on me so um, well it's interesting we're part way through a project looking at business models so the, the publish OER is very much aimed at a variety of business models and um, you know I'm grateful for the opportunity to have to write a paper this week on that very subject for Cambridge 2012 otherwise they were going to cancel my registration <laughs> and um, I don't know who was answering email for score that week, but thank you also for the extension. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, so, so what we've done there is, is publish some of the scenarios that we're planning to, or that we're exploring. But some of them, you know, technically we're not going to be able to explore all of them. But I, I definitely think, for example, that advertising has to be one of the options that we build in because it is an enabler for those who have less available to them. If somebody wants to go to a premium service without advertising embedded in the materials that they're looking at, let's say, for example, if you're linking to um, content that is uh, available through a publisher's website or, or whatever, if there is advertising with that, um, you can 
then make it available to a wider group of people and potentially third world, etc. And I think it's very important that we go global and we don't maintain our focus on those students who are currently in education in the higher education sector in the UK. It's very much a global thing and, and about making these models work internationally as well. So the business models that we're looking at are, are actually in that paper, and I don't think I'm allowed to share that with you at the moment. Um, I was a bit aghast, actually, to see the Ottawa poster go up quite so quickly. I have to go to Kuala Lumpur tomorrow to present the, uh, the, the poster that uh, Janet has kindly shared on the uh, SCORE website, but I'm, I'm sure it won't be a problem for the, uh, for the Ottawa conference that, that that's there a, a day or two early. Um, so the, but the business models that um, I think more generally operate in health. Health is not tolerant of advertising. It's not tolerant of business. It's not tolerant of um, doing things in ways that look commercially suspect in any sense at all. So there's a, there's a big difference in terms of how we think about education, how we think about the ethics, the approaches, the um, patient-centeredness that we need to bring to the conversation that we have with patients in, in terms of health care and, and supporting health. And that's a really difficult thing. I would like to mention the Wikivet project, which has, has um, open content. Uh, it now has 15,000 users worldwide. Um, it, is a, it is the veterinary curriculum online. And... Uh, they have content, they're the ones who are picking up the content from um, Elsevier on the veterinary side, but they also have content from Cabby and Manson's, who are two other publishers of varying sizes. And, and it's in their interest to share material that way and to have the highest quality. Um, what will be interesting in the future is about these, in relation to business models, is, is what authors do. At the moment, authors are still preferring to work with publishers in, in the mainstream, but that may disappear altogether over the next two or three years. And we might just see people going into private publishing, and, um, and I think that will create a whole new economy of it in its own right. Um, Sarah mentioned crowdsourcing. It's absolutely imperative that publishers realise that the, the, the um, voice of the crowd is louder than the voice of a single peer reviewer or a single commissioning editor. And um, so no matter what the, the commissioning editors think they're buying, um, they certainly want to, to try and hit the nail on the head in terms of what content will still be popular in the future. And, and so they need feedback from the crowds. So one of our purposes is to look at how social media can help inform what commissioning editors should be buying and supporting in the future. <coughs> there's, there's a natural conflict there between the idea of <coughs> commercialising something that's open. So I think we need to be very careful about how we pitch this concept. Of it's actually open, but we're going to make some money from it. Um, I think the open university model is actually one of the most effective, this idea that it's a shop window. But what you're doing is opening a shop window to your wares, as it were, and giving a taste of an experience, and then people go, actually, I like that experience, I'm going to buy into it. If you look at the... the mm -hmm. Most of the studies suggest the reason people actually study a degree is for career progression, not necessarily for the learning experience. Um, people could learn something for mm -hmm. free, which they do in Open Learn. They will pay, then, for it to be validated and get mm -hmm. a certificate that says, yes, you have learned to a certain level, and here you are. Now, hopefully, this will help you progress your career. So I think the premium aspect is the fact that you validate the learning. <clears throat> there is another model, and this is the sponsorship model, which I think is quite an interesting way to say, well, actually, it costs us money to create open education resource. We have an audience, and it goes back to what Sarah said about identifying your audience and what value they will attach to 
that piece of resource. So, for instance, if you were a subject <coughs> area, let's say construction, and you wanted to develop you know, a whole host of resources based around construction and architecture, why not get one of the big you know, building companies to sponsor that? And every time the content goes out, there's an advert for their company, you know, to encourage graduates to engage in their uh, company, to work with them, and hopefully they might see it as a way of recruiting and adding uh, commercial value to their company. So I think there are models that we still haven't explored yet, that being one of them, that if you have very subject-specific content, then you can say to a company, well, actually, I can put this content in front of 10,000 students at a cost of, you know, half a penny uh, an access for you. That looks like a very good financial costing model. But I don't think we've really explored that yet. Mm. Um, you have anything to add? You did <coughs> say quite a lot about premium I business models in your um, Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think a lot of it comes down to institutional strategy and how much the individual university is actually um, in favour of commercialisation. Um, I think universities will be badging themselves very differently over the next couple of years to differentiate between um, whether they're, they're charges or whether they're non-charges. You know, it could be that um, you know some of the uh, the traditional red bricks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, would find that okay. You know, um, commercialisation, yes, uh, but that you know. Um, different universities will have different selling points, so it would not, not necessarily work for everyone. Uh, along with that, I have to say, one of the issues around commercialisation is who owns the IP on any of this stuff. If, if the institution doesn't own the IP around some of it, then forget it anyway. <laughs> so if I was uh, an institution, I'd be thinking, right, so what do, I, what do I own? What don't I own? And then think about what I can do with, with that bit. Um, the licensing is a different issue. It's what I own that's, that's going to be um, something to think about. Um, another thing to think about, I think, is also how you're going to get people to pay for it. Um, you have to be realistic that people aren't going to pay um, £20 for uh, certain, you know, whatever you're offering. It will be a micropayment in which case it's going to cost you quite a lot of money to um, administer that system. Cost-benefit versus uh, the management aspect, that's why publishers don't do it very much, because it's a big nightmare. So, um, so that would be something that, to think about. If I was uh, a pro-VP, pro which of course I'm not, um, then I'd also be thinking about... How can I, if I am thinking about commercialising some of this stuff, can I bring it into one big ball, say, the, the university publisher? So Oxford uh, University Press does awfully well, Cambridge University Press. Could I put all of these things together to make it more cost-effective for the institution? So that's something that um, you could think about as well. Um, and I do agree that... The sponsorship model is something that, that hasn't really been thought about, but um, certainly uh, with, with different work that I've been doing, that public engagement issue um, and how, if you could link that to an apprenticeship that, that that company was offering, how great would that be for, you know, 
various PR purposes for the university and for the company. Um, so there's there's lots around it, but um, yeah, we're we're just starting to to think about that research, and it, it takes a lot more time and investment, I think, from from some of the funders, JISC and others, to think about some of these models and how we can advise or, or help on that. Okay, any questions from our remote participants? Uh, please do email in or uh, tweet. Uh, in the absence of that, questions from the room? Thanks. Um, you mentioned in one of the presentations, I can't remember which one, I think it was yours, Simon, about uh, the role of learners in um, the whole OER thing. And we've talked about um, listening to the voices of audiences when developing OER. Um, could any of the panel expand on how they see the role of the learner in in the sustainability aspect. Um, I was wondering whether there's like a spectrum of involvement of the learner from one end sort of perhaps just guiding what content is in demand, so being a demander, demand sort of indicator, through to the sort of the, the far end maybe being the producers and the consumers all in one. Um, where do you sort of see the learner's input into all of this? Because they're a kind of a quite, quite a free resource, I would say. If you're looking for sustainability, you want the most amount of people or the most amount of resource. So everyone in the world would be a cracking sort of starting point. But how could we use them to, yeah, to, to sort of create and sustain this, this sort of OER movement? Is that, that was a, a vague question, but there you go. Yeah. I could pick some of that up, I think. <clears throat> I think, I think the, the essence of a learner has shifted. You know, years ago, you had to pay for knowledge. You had to pay for information. You know, before the internet, you know, whenever it was born and has evolved, it was very difficult to get hold of that sort of information. So, you know, if you look historically at things like Encyclopedia Britannica, people would pay hundreds of pounds to have. You know, you know, you're talking, you know, low middle class families would buy Encyclopedia Britannica to have all of that knowledge in their house, and you don't have to do that anymore. <clears throat> so there's a shift already taking place about what we will pay for, what we won't. Most people will go, oh, I'll get a Wikipedia for that information, it's cheaper. In fact, it's free. You know, so there's always going to be that shift, I think. And I think there's a realisation that knowledge and information is free. And it's how we as institutions and education providers package that effectively so that the learners will buy that package. Because the benefit we do have is there's so much information. And that is a barrier for learners. You know, having so much information but not having the expertise to be able to formalise it effectively, I think is where we can sell and add value. I think the learners will always buy that. Learners will always buy the fact that we've gone through that and as educational providers, we've picked out all the things that don't have value. We get the, the focus down onto the learning and that we progress them in a developmental way. So I think they will definitely pay for that. But there will be some learners that won't want any formal qualifications and could learn as much as they wanted if they had the time. Um, but I do think that they will pay less for information and content and more for an experience of uh, having a validated uh, award. Um, I really like the 
model of uh, the drivers of the OER that you provided, the library, the center for learning and teaching students and all this. It seems to me that the assumption is that they are all working together with common purpose, common interest, no conflict. So it seems to me that in this your experiment, everything's like an ideal. Can you see a system where there will be conflict? Because I am looking at the Center for Learning and Teaching, mm -hmm. where I've worked before. Over the years, there have been <laughs> sorry. Over the years, there have been a conflict between library and oh, uh, Center for Teaching and Learning, like one taking on the role of the other. And with the OER concept, it seems to me that it's a very recent development, particularly when you look at its concept uh, from the American system. Uh, do, are you experiencing um, any kind of conflict in role amongst these uh, drivers to a point where affecting the efficiency and the effectiveness? And if so, how are you getting over it? Uh, I like the idea of your throwing pebbles to keep the sustainability going on, I, I, I love that. You must be a, a person that really, you're a politician at the same time working within the system. I've learned a lot from that, that one has to keep talking to all the, at, at different levels. But I'm interested in the role conflict because in a system like in Nigeria, uh, people tend to hang on to their position and they don't want any, they don't go, be, they don't look beyond Common, uh, common goal and how they, they can harmonize their different roles in such a way that we bring about overall efficiency and effectiveness. How do, do, do you experience that? It seems to me that yours is an ideal model the, without any problem. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, yes. Uh, I, I don't think it's just in Nigeria, Sarah. <laughs> I think it's everywhere um, that people tend to be fairly territorial. And big organisations like universities are the same as anywhere. That you know, you do tend to sort of look within your your own section and just go right. This is my bit. And with the cuts, the shutters come down more rather than branching out. I think. Um, now, I, I manage a partnership activity, and it's tough <laughs> because you're constantly finding um, areas of mutual benefit. I think. And, and that's the way to make it work. Uh, I would say a common area at the minute is that both the library and the Centre for Learning and Teaching are selling that institution quite a lot of the time um, to prospective students. And that's, that's the area of commonality, that OER is such a wonderful advertisement for the, the institution. And the library, very often, and the resources that they hold is a wonderful advertisement as well. So if we can say, OK, that's where we join together and that's where our, our goal is, then, then sometimes it, it makes it easier. I, I don't know if you agree with that, Simon. It's about finding <clears throat> some mutual benefit. <clears throat> and it was, it's, it's not, it looks rosy, but it's not. It has always been as rosy as that. It's, that's probably taken five years to shift that culture. And it's not something that can just happen. I think what I've learned to do is find people that work in each of those areas that have a common value or common ethos. And then between us, keep throwing pebbles in. Mm. And um, 
What's interesting is it's about identifying what your role is. So what is the role of the library? What is the role of the Centre for Learning and Teaching? What is the role of our um, information media technology service? And between the three of us, we are still trying to define what that is. Even if you take it at a basic level, staff development. You know, what is it? What staff development does our technical service bring? What staff development does our library bring? What staff development does the Centre for Learning and Teaching bring? And how does it interconnect with each other so that there is a joined-up process? I think there is a cultural shift, and it's a cultural shift, the realisation that you can't sit on your own. And if you sit on your own, the likelihood is you might not be there in the next five years because you've not engaged in a broader, wider context within your institution. And actually, by working together, you actually support each other and the university recognises that they need all three services because they're working together to create a bigger experience. It does sound rosy, but there is always conflict and there is always challenge. You know, we should be doing this and, you, you know, we used to do that. And it's about beginning to get people to identify what their role is and having confidence in saying, yes, this is our role and we're very good at it. Yes. <laughs> um, I just want to comment from the perspective of the University of Westminster where this is in the initial stages and where I don't really want to use the word conflict because <laughs> but we're certainly not harmonised and there is a definite pressure to say the academic liaison library role to transform that into a teaching role but of course that doesn't sit well with the teaching staff who are under pressure because their numbers are being reduced so it's I it's a difficult transition, in a way, given that, that roles are changing and different departments, in a sense, are defining boundaries. I mean, that library staff are not... I mean, traditionally haven't had the skills to be teachers, but, I mean, now that it, the recruitment is such that you should be well-versed in resources, but also how to communicate and teach to some extent that um, that role is a difficult one and I think open, open educational resources seems to provide a bridge both ways that you're, that you're effectively you're still saying as a librarian here is an access to a resource but at the same time you do need um, a very high level of awareness of not just traditional disciplines but emerging interdisciplinarities that you have to point to. You have to point to uh, the fact that a, a particular disciplines are, are developing um, in relation to other disciplines in particular ways. And if you're not aware of, of that direction, then you, you, you're not being very helpful um, as a member of traditional library staff or in helping to identify um, open resources and you're not helping to um, encourage the development of the, the disciplines in their new, you know, configuration. So, I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's not exactly conflict-ridden, but it, it, it's not an easy process. I mean, it, I mean, we effectively, I think uh, there was some um, phase one funding at Westminster, but um, uh, it, it didn't 
because there weren't the, the strategic alliances, it, it hasn't unfolded and it's taken, so that's a delay of, of three or four years. And I think that's just being picked up now. Yes, I might just add that um, open media in, in this institution has suffered a little bit from... I mean, what can often happen is it can grow up in different places and, and, and you can then end up with something that's rather incoherent and fragmented. So, for example, OpenLearn um, came out of uh, strategy, the portfolio of the PVC for strategy, and iTunes U came out of the uh, portfolio of the PVC teaching, learning, and quality. Um, and the two were entirely independent for a while. It made no, no sense, and, and that, that had to be an exercise to sort of draw that together. And obviously, you know, there were some tensions involved in, in, in trying to create a, a united approach to uh, handling open media. I mean, we've got there now, uh, but it, it wasn't there initially. Um, I was just wondering if you had any tips on educating effectively uh, effectively educating uh, academics on copyright issues and and such we um, previously with our teaching resources that we've been trying to develop um, have had a lot of problems um, sourcing them from the academic community because um, most of the stuff that's come in hasn't been able to be used on online um, and I was wondering whether talking a little bit about community earlier um, we're a learned society, so we're sort of spread across institutions. And whether you think that that sort of that being in the community of one institution is, is particularly effective at, at getting across those points, or whether there's a, a wider way of doing it. Oh, um, this is tricky, isn't it? I think um, we've had examples in the presentations this morning of um, how you can uh, win people on a disciplinary basis and you can connect people because of their interest in that discipline. Um, you can connect people within an institution, and Simon made that, um, I think, fairly clear in terms of how they've done it at Leeds Met. And, and I also think that Sarah's um, given us some ideas about how that, you know, about joining together even the stakeholders to, to ensure that there's a common message and that the core messages are, are repeated, um, which I've been trying to tweet here in case anyone was wondering if I was doing my email. Um, the, uh, so uh, I've been tweeting some of your questions in because Amber's now following me as of 10.30 this morning, which is very embarrassing. Um, cheers, Amber. <laughs> um, I hardly tweet anything. J Janet will tell you I was hopeless earlier. But, but um, so I think there's a real issue. I think the real key to it is just-in-time information. It's something that they need, uh, and something that you can give her handle on. Where, so for example, we we went to see our dentists um, as a, one of our case studies as part of the UR project, and the. The d a group of dentists was saying, you know, we really want to be able to share learning resources on the VLE, but we're very concerned about, you know, they've got pictures of paediatric um, forensic um, dental cases, you know, things that, you know, just there's no way that this sort of material should or could be uploaded to the VLE in the way that institutions will expect in 2012. So it's a real clash of... Uh, agendas and culture so to find anything that helps them to do what they need to do and so one the, the simple t techniques that we've drafted like for example um, have a takedown policy have a disclaimer um, 
attribute your sources and then manage your risks. So I actually disagree with Sarah when she said, make sure you own everything that you, you use. I disagree with that completely. Make sure that if you do use somebody else's stuff, attribute it and have a takedown policy and make sure that you manage your risks effectively. And, and as long as you're risk managing, because obviously that's the situation with a lot of the orphaned works. Um, it's if you commercialise it. I, I meant to just, if, you, if you're planning to start I see. charging. Yeah. But yes, in any other case, I yeah. agree completely. Well, our experience is that workshops are the most effective way. The idea that somebody comes to your session and you say, what is your current practice? Mm-hmm. And you say, actually, that current practice is legal. And they go, like that. The yeah. realisation yeah. process of, I didn't actually realise that what I was doing was not a legal practice. And it's just then saying, well, there is a way you can do it, and this is the route. And mm-hmm. it's just very simple things. Mm-hmm. You know, not bombarding them with this massive task of learning to be open, but, right, he's currently searching Google. In Google, there's an option to search for only Creative Commons license. Mm-hmm. Job done. And they've started the journey. And that really <clears throat> has been the most effective method for us. Thank you. Um, thanks for a fascinating morning. Um, I was particularly interested in some of the things that um, you were saying, I suppose both Simon and perhaps also Megan, about the way in which OER creation, use and embedding is recognised by institutions in maybe the um, achievement or staff reviews of individual academics and, and the way in which that activity is, is um, seen to be valued. And Jane and I have been doing a little bit of research in the the middle of it, looking at, um, we've been talking with people who um, created OERs as part of projects for the first time and the sort of potential transformative impact that had on their practices. And so I guess from a sustainability um, perspective, the people with whom we spoke, for example, all said having produced OERs, we then were very, very keen to start using them and finding new ones and it became much more part of one person said, you know, I now always if I write a bid, put that in, that that's part of good practice. Um, and, and another thing that, that came out though that we were a bit surprised about was that the extent to which people say and I really value my OERs and I like to, to, to list them alongside my publications or on a website or when I've been um, asked about productivity and so I was just interested in wondering if you would say a bit more about the, the kind of alignment between the individual sense of the value of these things and the extent to which the institution also values that kind of practice that those academics have been engaged with and, and, and brings it into things like you started talking a little bit about um, professional record of achievement or that kind of thing. So I thought maybe you could say a bit more about that. I think it's difficult because <clears throat> most institutions, what they value really is evidence that you generate an income. Mm. <laughs> Research does, <laughs> but um, open education resource <clears throat> development doesn't. Mm. But I think there is a realisation that there is value in being able to evidence it as part of your scholarly activity and your practice so you can use it on that level which is the, um, the PDR process it's about saying I have an objective for this year this is my objective it meets one of the assessment learning and teaching priorities good okay and they can put that forward I don't think at an institution level they think great this person's releasing OER but I think what's interesting is that if you look at the new professional standards framework that's coming on board in the UK, there's real opportunity there for staff to record 
their experience and their journey in the open education sector. And this idea now that it's not a rigid framework where it's all got to be about very specific things, that you can actually evidence your practice completely open if you wished and use that to, to gain levels of um, status within the professional standards framework. So I think there is real opportunity over the next 12 to 18 months to really push forward this idea that actually within the professional standards framework I could become a senior fellow of the HEA based entirely on my demonstra demonstrating my work in open education I think is a real powerful model it would be silly to let that go by the wayside if staff didn't take that opportunity up we've Come to uh, one o'clock, which is time for lunch, and I don't know about your stomachs, but mine is feeling distinctly uh, <coughs> in need of a little sustenance. Um, particularly those who are uh, with us remotely, please, please come back at two o'clock, because we're really keen for you to join in the uh, group activity uh, afterwards, uh, after lunch. Uh, so we'll be explaining uh, that then. Um, and then working on a number of collaborative documents. That's the, the method for our, our collaboration. Uh, so till then, um, I hope those of you uh, remotely have a nice lunch, as I know we shall. <laughs> okay, welcome back, everyone, and welcome back to our um, virtual participants, our remote participants. Um, we're now going to uh, do a bit of... Uh, group discussion work, and we're going to do it through the medium of some Google Documents. The joy of Google Docs is that you should be able to all simultaneously edit and nothing will be lost. Done that. I'm rather pleased with what's, what's resulted. Not everything is from, uh, uh, from here. We have a Portsmouth University contribution. No one from Portsmouth here in the room, is there? No, no. So thank you very much, uh, remote person from Portsmouth who, who I don't know who you are but um, we have from then uh, to uh, current position none, at least no projects that are widely publicised. I believe the library has some sort of repository but I imagine this is not open to all. There may be uh, centralised policies that I'm unaware of. Ah, good. Thank you. <laughs> Real person there. That's excellent. Uh, nice to... Glad it's, it's working. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Portsmouth uh, Delegate. Um, and uh, we also have Birkbeck College. Again, uh, that's someone who's contributing remotely. Uh, we have library repository and lectures have been started, captured. I need to explore more about policies. This is my task for the next few days. Good for you. Well done. Um, and, uh, and then, um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's a, quite a an interesting and mixed picture. I mean, the OU uh, policy, there is a fairly well-established policy to release uh, up to 10% of all content. I think the policy is a minimum of 5% for new courses and maximum of 10. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, no other real obvious policy, uh, which is interesting, though Open Learn and iTunes U investment is substantial. It, it certainly is. Uh, Requirement in curriculum production to identify elements of modules to be put out as open content. We have this thing called uh, um, structured content, which is a, uh, a tool that sits within Word that allows you to uh, create in a 
multi-format mode uh, straight off. And as part of that, you can kind of press a button and say publish in OpenLearn, and it, it, it appears, which is quite neat. Um, they, on the policy front, though, there is uh, a move to a policy of having a uh, percentage uh, that needs to be found content. Now, there's discussion and, indeed, exploration of 70% uh, of OU courses in future uh, being found content. And that doesn't necessarily mean open. It may be stuff that you have to pay to license, but that we should aim to be uh, writing from scratch no more than 30%, which is a very recent development and interesting. Anyway, uh, Leeds, uh, met no formal policy document, but plenty of guidance documents. Uh, reference to OEIs embedded into other formal documentation. That's very good. I don't think there are many institutions where that's the case. Uh, E-learning strategy, KPIs in Centre for Learning and Teaching, implementation plan, uh, referencing OERs. So you actually have a policy for putting OER into other, other policies. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I like it. That's most... It's not a real policy. <laughs> no, no, no. Small p. Um, yes. Uh, Newcastle institutional resistance uh, moves to recording, making digitally available lecture content. Uh, but we've had yeah, Westminster no explicit policy readiness to begin to consider OER. Uh, several eras of open access material available. Um, and uh, UCL, there is an, an OER at U oh, an OER at UCL website. It's got a certain amount of visibility. This year, a teaching and learning portal has been created. It's buried. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know how it is. Very difficult, actually, to you know, because you want everything to be easily visible from near the home page, don't you? Open repository for research outputs, but only talk of an OER uh, repository. Uh, policy awareness that open education needs to be addressed. Don't think there's a written policy. Likely to be more in future. UCL has IPR friendly for academics policy because IPR rests with the creator. Yeah, I think that raises a really interesting question as to well, you know, what is the ideal position? Is it one in which you know every academic has a right written into their terms of employment to uh, publish anything they produce as OER, should they so wish, or is it one in which you know every bit of the university directs you towards uh, doing certain things with OERs, which is kind of the OU way. The OU way says you know you will release five to ten percent of your module as as OER, um, and uh, there isn't much resistance to it, but it's a rather different approach. And uh, Leicester, no formal policy documents, but plenty of guidance documents. Uh, pockets of the university use and create OER as a matter of routine, built into carpe diem learning design workshops. And uh, Royal Institute of uh, Physiology, no formal policies, has a project trying to solicit best teaching resources uh, from the community, but it didn't really take off. Lots of copyright issues, etc., uh, now we're investigating how to go ahead with this and whether we are at the right level of institution to do it. Yeah, that's quite a nice, you know, rich picture we've got there of, of what's happening in different institutions. Pretty wide cross-section. Um, 
And, uh, oh, quite a few additional comments as well. Uh, we think it might be useful to include a box that course teams has to have to tick to say whether they are basing some part of the course, course on OERs. That's a very good point. Just, you know, it's something you have to think about, in other words. You know, you don't have to do anything, but you just have to have thought of it, which is often, you know, all it takes. Do we need a separate OER policy, or should it be embedded in other policies, such as teaching and learning? What do you reckon? Do you generally think that? Yes. Yeah. But not overlooked is the main thing, isn't it? Not ignored. Uh, perhaps it's less about having or needing an explicit OER policy and rather more about a wide-ranging series of challenges to open up practices and processes in all parts of an institution. Hmm. I say hmm too. <laughs> uh, carrots or sticks. That's a very good point, actually. There is, I mean, in the open education movement, there is a sort of general sort of move away from seeing it as primarily about resources and more about practices. Um, and that's actually, you know, if you thought OER was, was challenging as a concept, once you get into open educational practices, you're starting to question many of the sort of fundamental tenets of higher education about a sort of closed system with uh, very uh, tightly managed accreditation systems and, and, and so on. Uh, you're starting to ask the question, do we actually need all this? Aren't there other ways of doing this that would be cheaper, more inclusive, uh, more dynamic, more uh, current, etc.? And uh, so, uh, yes. Uh, should we start calling it OER or just free stuff? Should we? Yes. Should we continue calling it OER or just free stuff? Yeah. I don't really like OER, I have to say. Um, it kind of depends who, who you're talking to. You almost need different terms for different audiences. I mean, as far as students are concerned, all that matters is it's free stuff. Um, as far as academics are concerned, free stuff is part of it, but the, the licensing has some significance. Um, how much OER activity is there? Um, Portsmouth reports, not a vast amount, and it isn't something widely promoted or publicised to my knowledge. Um, that's probably pretty common, that that, uh, that would represent quite a few other institutions, I think. Uh, Leeds met, on average, at least two staff development sessions per month related to... Wow, you really do get the, uh, get the class prize on, on this event. Um, course development teams are discussing OER use as part of uh, curriculum discussions, but difficult to measure the activity as much of it might be corridor conversations. Yeah, but, but that's actually what you really want, isn't it? I mean, you want OER in the corridor conversations. I mean, when it gets to that level, you, you've really uh, got somewhere. Um, I mean, it's certainly our sort of library team here are, are quite good at, you know, think, bringing it up. Um, but, uh, you know, that, and then there's activity at different levels and in different roles. Yeah. Uh, UCL, there have been quite a lot of projects in the UK OER phases. Yes, indeed, they have, haven't they? Uh, Starting to move beyond funded projects. That's really the trick, isn't it, uh, of, you know, uh, and this is, in a sense, what you're talking about. You know, how do you move from a, a project that then just stops dead uh, to one that, albeit, you know, dips uh, almost invariably, but then is able to carry on and hopefully even sort of grow under its own steam af after that. Um, 
uh, activity that, yes, but there's a lot of sharing that goes on without people knowing that they're engaged in OER activity. What a good point, yes. Um, and indeed, you know, that's actually a very good way to sort of bring in OER. I was talking to a group of staff developers last week, and uh, they're ever so good at sharing among themselves. You know, they're a, they're a community that, that supports each other across institutions very effectively. And they thought, well, can't think of any reason why we shouldn't just publish more widely. There's no, there's no reason not. And they got really quite excited about setting up a staff development collection somewhere uh, where they would, uh, you know, they would be their first port of, of call. Um, Lester still writing. Uh, we've had several OER projects. Most of the uh, official OER work has been linked to funded projects. We keep discovering individuals who are doing OER type work but not calling it OERs. Yeah, so this is beginning to be a recurring theme, isn't it? OER without people knowing that's what they're doing. Um, in a sense, that's part of what we've got to offer, isn't it? As a, a straightforward framework that helps, uh, if you like, regularize what, what they're doing, um, gives, gives them a, uh, a, a, pl a better platform for it. Uh, well, physiological society, very little. There is scope, budget for a great deal. There is, there's budget for a great deal. <laughs> well, interesting. <laughs> yes, I bet you did. <laughs> um, aimed at school age and undergraduate projects that are about to start. Interesting. I mean, that, that's that really is touching on something, isn't it? Uh, I mean, one thing that's absolutely astonishing at this university is the number of projects that are using OER. It's roughly 35 at the last count, current and relatively recent projects in which OER is a significant and important element. And, you know, I keep discovering them out there. They're not necessarily things I've ever heard of until they pop up out of nowhere. Uh, yep, large-scale projects including OpenLearn and big input into other uh, initiatives up iTunes U. Uh, get ahead, stay ahead project. Sorry, not calling themselves. Oh, that was Bert Beck. Oh, right, yes, okay. Thank you, Bert Beck. Excellent. Uh, yes, you're, you're with the theme there of people not knowing they're doing OER. You know, it's like, like discovering you've been talking prose all your life. Um, we are... <laughs> okay, we're all aware there is a lot of unofficial OER activity happening. Uh, good to do it in a more joined-up way. Yes, that, that's a very good point, because I think that's... The joining up, in fact, we have an answer to this. We have a way of joining it up, but I'll come to that later in the day. Keep you in suspense. Okay, how do other policies in impact? Because I think this is quite an interesting thing. I mean, this institution, for all our wonderful sort of rhetoric of openness, there's real tension between uh, OER and business development. Um, you know, there's a bit of the university whose job it is to try and get as much income as possible from licensing our courses. They look at the people like, you know, us, uh, who, who want to sort of put it all out for free, as if we've, you know, lost a... Uh, you know, pork pie short of a buffet or something. Um, and they just, you know, they just don't get it. So, you know, while you have sort of one bit of the university that's been charged to do X, which is in one sense in complete contradiction to another bit of the university trying to do Y, 
uh, you're going to have sort of policy conflict. Uh, so, Portsmouth, again, thank you very much for your contribution. I can't say that any policies that I'm affected by refer at all to OER. If there uh, aren't, then it isn't wisely uh, promoted. We're going through a policy change this year, so there may well be some more e-learning-focused policies in the future. Yes. I mean, for many years I did e-learning at Oxford University, and uh, it hadn't impinged on the policy makers in the university, so I was able to do whatever I liked. In a more enlightened university, I would have been constrained by an institutional policy, and it wouldn't have been nearly, you know, I wouldn't have had nearly as much freedom, and I couldn't have been half as innovative. So there is a sense in which policy is not always good, I think. Um, uh, Sometimes, you know, there's, there's an argument that the less the better. Sorry, I've been talking rather a bit there. That's really interesting. Thank you. That, that was great. Let's move on, uh, if we can, quite quickly to the next uh, section, document two, which is uh, barriers and solutions stroke mitigation. I said this because some, some barriers are such that you can't eliminate them, but you can perhaps reduce the seriousness of, of that effect. So if you can have a, another go with, with this. Um, let me just uh, pull it up and remind myself what it says. Um, ah, what's wrong with my finger? Okay, some people have started. Uh, have they? No, they. I thought I saw some. No. Okay. What's impeding open educational practices, both in your institution and more widely, and how might each impediment be overcome? I suggest we take 15 minutes on this. So again, you know, if those remote, uh, work joining us remotely, we'll have 15 minutes or so of non-transmission, and then we'll come back to life. Okay, let's see where we've got to on, on this one. Um, I don't have a way here of seeing what's been... Uh, contributed externally and internally. Uh, Janet tells me there are 11 people currently editing the document, and we're about half of that number. So hopefully we've got uh, a few people throwing things in uh, from elsewhere. Um, So we have uh, cultural factors as the first impediment showing here. Um, The solution mitigation is still being created as I speak. Um, conversation therapy and a culture of mindfulness. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I, always, I always worry a little bit when this word culture comes, particularly as in cultural change, because I think, A, culture is an almost impossible thing to change, um, and if you're going to set out for it, you need a you know, very long-term agenda. And secondly, what's wrong with the culture? Um, there's actually a pretty good culture in higher education. Sharing is very much part of of the culture. Um, Openness is in many ways part of the culture too. It's much more habit and practice that needs to change and uh, and indeed uh, the the inducements to behave a particular way uh, that perhaps need to be addressed rather than the culture itself. I... I, um, so I think, uh, you know, 
I think where you do, you know, where the only way to get something fixed is through cultural change, as in, I know, getting people in the US to take climate change seriously, uh, then you, sorry, that's a bit, <laughs> bit of a prejudicial <laughs> statement, isn't it? Um, but, you know, there, there, there may be an argument there for some real cultural change needed away from, uh, uh, you know, the culture of the, the, the car uh, reigning supreme. But um, I'm digging my hole here, aren't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the, it's surprisingly rare when, you know, when that really is the only way, way forward. Um, uh, not seeing any personal benefit, attachment to perceived value of materials. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. The number of times when something's being held back in case, you know, with the intention of making lots of money from it, and you take the number of times that's happened, uh, and the number of times when somebody manages to make lots of money from something, and the, the ratio is a very... Uh, extreme one. Uh, demonstrate through examples why OER has personally benefited people, e.g. if an academic staff member releases OER material, they can use it in any institution they may work at. Yes, yes, portability, you know, personal mobility. That's a very good good point there. Because uh, you can get quite caught out by, by that, you know, having, having invested a huge amount of effort into preparing a course and then realizing you can't actually take any of it with you. Um, awareness, yeah, where it's all too easy when you're sort of in a in an area like this um, and talking to other people who are equally enthused about OER to lose sight of the fact that actually there's very little awareness still in the higher education sector. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the, the the difference between England and Scotland in that, but in England too, I mean, I, there's still a way to go, I think. Uh, Running seminars, talking to people, set the example by creating OERs, share, yes. Um, perception, open equals free equals low quality. Uh, point to high quality sources, use bad examples as prompts for discussion and dialogue. I like that. So find something that reinforces that and then, then start talking, yes. Um, in many ways, you know, it's, it's like the internet as a whole and... and the new, the new, you know, the new practice of digital scholarship requires you to be much better at assessing the, the quality of anything you find on the internet than was the, the case previously. Uh, lack of staff time, so then get involved in creating things, or bother. Um, yeah, that, I mean, I don't think you can fix that one. You can you can mitigate, can't you? But you can't remove that as a as a perennial problem. CPD is a good motivator. Start focusing on good examples. Yeah, I like that. Um, communication has no solution. Uh, no, sorry, commodification. I'm misreading it. Commodification. Who wrote commodification? <laughs> okay. I haven't got around to putting in the reframing of the commodity. What do you mean by, by that as a, as a problem? That that, higher, that education, higher education is being commodified, and, and well, or? I mean, effectively a textbook. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, I mean, effectively, a, a published textbook is a commodity. I mean, it, it's it's a educational resource, but yes. it's produced using, I suppose, a, a kind of industrial approach to publishing. So maybe um, the res, the residual effects of 
of an industrial economy in education. So, I mean, it's, it's that, mm. that what you have is a material outcome of a production process. So, I mean, it's... it's um, yes. That's... That's interesting. That I mean, the, the two, you know, two potential solutions to this. One is finding ways to uh, more visibly commodify OER so that it, you know, and an e-book is a good example of this, I think, where you're taking an OER and turning it into something that looks like, more like a tangible asset uh, than, than would otherwise be the case. Uh, and the other is to challenge a whole notion of commodification as being totally irrelevant and, and not actually helpful. Uh, perhaps. Yeah. Um, attitude. Widespread idea that the work is extra and therefore requires some form of contractual change, i.e. an extra paid hour a week. So that's kind of linked to the staff time one. Uh, promote the idea that this work needn't be time-consuming and that there is assistance available and promote the many benefits for students and academics. Yes. Um, I mean, in a funny sort of way, you know, academics do all sorts of things that take up time, uh, which on the face of it can't be justified, but, but which makes sense to them at the time for a particular reason. So on the one hand, you know, the time thing is, is a biggie, but on the other hand, I'm not convinced it's that rational, really. I think it's about emotions in many ways, and, and so that's a good solution there, really. Uh, greater enthusiasm than actual take-up. Concern that the existing OERs weren't suitable and took longer to adapt. Yes. Uh, see above. Also give course teams better search strategies for OERs. Um, yeah. That, that one's actually very hard to address, in, in, I, I think, because uh, on the one hand, it can take a lot of work to establish how fit for your purpose an OER is um, because publishers of OER are not very good at describing the OER separately from the content. They leave it to you to look at it yourself and sometimes it can take a while to gather the information you'd need by, by looking. Um, and then equally, you know, they're often presented in such a way that modification, even though permitted, isn't that easy. I mean, for one thing, an awful lot of OERs are published as PDFs. How stupid is that? Um, and uh, so, uh, so the, the, the adaptation can be a lot harder than it uh, should be. So, yes, that's a very, really good point. Academic ownership, resistance to sharing. This can take a number of forms, including within the teaching itself. We discussed the example of a photography department teaching their students on how to protect and control IP rights without... Uh, discussion of creative commons. Yeah. Um, in this example, the students themselves have moved forward ahead of the department, uh, departmental guidance, and are actively using open licensing to good effect on their career development. Oh, that's brilliant. Lovely. Yeah. Don't forget that the students can often be the solution. Um, I was at a uh, conference in Edinburgh yesterday, uh, which they call rather strangely uh, enhancement themes, um, and uh, it's, it's all linked to the QAA policy in Scotland, which is all carrot and no stick. So it's all about enhancing the student learning experience and not, you know, identifying and, and uh, preventing uh, failures, if you see what I mean. Uh, but there were a couple of students there 
throwing in some really interesting observations about, uh, you know, various ways in which they had effectively taken control of the curriculum uh, in, in different uh, circumstances and, and uh, the mixed reaction that uh, they'd been to it. Uh, requirement to put all teaching materials on the VLE. Yes, that's a good one. This means that academics don't see the link between OERs out there and their course materials, even the OERs that are produced that they produce themselves. They don't give their own students access to the OERs, but rather to an in-house version in Blackboard. The VLE has a lot to answer for, doesn't it? Oh, dear. Uh, click to share button that Blackboard and other VLEs is going to include in a future version of the platform. It is in the latest Blackboard, isn't it? No? No. Yes, yes, but but like you know, most most institutions have stuck at an earlier version and not likely to move terribly quickly. So, yes, because I I think that's potentially something that could change the whole OER world quite quickly. Is if suddenly individual academics had, with one click, had the option to put their teaching materials out as OERs. That's right. At the moment, they they do. There are many ways in which they can produce OERs, but it's complicated, and they don't necessarily know about them. But if it's just yes. one click, it might completely change things. Yes. And I don't know whether institutions will actually, once they realise what that means, whether they'll actually enable that button or yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Almost better still to you know one click to close your content. <laughs> uh, that would be better still. But we we can but dream. Um, lack of support, often without the support of higher staff members, these projects fizzle out. Yes, achieve the buy-in of the higher-up staff members, push the positive aspects for students, institutional promotion and staff development so they can push the idea to those below them. That way the academic feels confident that their effort is worthwhile and appreciated, not something simply ignored and unsupported. Yeah, How you get that sort of senior level buy-in is tricky. I mean, you know, any, any <laughs> uh, good insight to share with us would be much appreciated. I mean, it, it definitely is there in some places. I mean, in this institution, there's really strong support from our vice-chancellor, but, you know, only one level down, you know, that moved down to PVC level, and, and it's not, not in the same degree, really, and... Um, it's, it's quite, quite patchy, quite patchy. Um, and, of course, it comes to a head where something needs some money spending on it, and that's when you uh, really discover how much high-level buy-in you've got for, uh, for OER. Um, lack of rewards for the staff once they've succeeded in sharing. Uh, rewards like extra money towards things that can help a member of staff for a laptop training or other additional items that may not normally be available. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> very easy to buy for academics. Quite a small amount of money can get you a, get you a long way. Um, speaking for myself. Uh, so, yes, but, I mean, in a sense, it's as much the recognition as the, uh, you know, the, the physical uh, aspect of the reward. And... Uh, it has to be said, I mean, I heard Russell Stannard's name mentioned on one of the tables. I mean, he's someone who's made his career through OER, no less. Uh, this is someone who uh, put out simple how-to 
materials on uh, basically different e-learning tools and techniques initially and then has branched out into other areas. And even bigger internationally is uh, the Kahn Foundation. Um, I've forgotten his first name. Sorry? Dolman. Dolman Kahn. Thank you. uh, I mean, he started out just helping his nephew, I think it was, with maths problems. And and he'd do little hand-drawn walkthroughs of different aspects of, of mathematics. And it's simply taken off. And now he's fated worldwide. Um, so, you know, not that that's sort of everybody's route, uh, but it can actually be, you know, very effective in terms of getting yourself known uh, in your community. Uh, perception among academics that someone else might make money out of my stuff. Yes, no solution to that, I notice. <laughs> Um, it's you just have to tackle that one head on say yes they might (laughs) are you you know how serious is that really Um, you're you've got no you know if you're you've got no serious intention of making money yourself uh, is it so bad if someone else does and it's not actually that likely anyway Um, but it's an answer come in while you've been talking Good, good. Uh, the reality that they won't have you ever. Yes, great, thank you. Um, I, I did go to a very interesting talk uh, at, at one conference recently, and it was someone sharing their experience of sharing photographs on, on Flickr. And uh, you had a, a photograph of some children's Wellington boots, you know, just outside the door. They're quite artistic, so different colours. And this then turned up on a sort of fetishist uh, uh, website. As, you know, it really meant something very different to a certain group of people. So there is that. So, you know, you may produce something with one idea in mind, and it can then be taken and used by someone for something entirely different. So... Be careful of pictures of Wellington boots. Um, assumption that education is safe from copyright problems in, in usage. Uh, have you split what you might commercialise and what you wouldn't commercialise? Uh, how, how you split what you might commercialise and what you wouldn't commercialise is quite a difficult decision. Yeah, it certainly is in this university. Very hard. Um, clarify the copyright position and offer open alternatives uh, yeah it's, it is tricky that because every university has a sort of commercialization uh, element and uh, uh, it's a really good way to get brownie points if you can you know, through your work do something that makes money for your university you will be fated and there it goes on, thank you, be very productive uh, Maybe the comparative emphasis in some institutions on research versus learning is a barrier for some. That's a bit tentative. That <laughs> uh, remains a, a biggie. Uh, academics still need to produce teaching materials for their own learners. If we emphasize designing for openness, then creating OER should not take any more time than creating materials for your own class. Yes, exactly so. And in many ways, what OER is doing is it's kind of moving teaching activity into the same uh, domain as research activity because you are producing published output in the same way. And that's actually quite a powerful uh, thing. It's uh, it kind of 
levels the playing field between the two in, 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 in one way. Uh, not always easy to showcase content that is exemplary, both inside and outside the organization. This is who's typing, right? <laughs> be nice to have an independent showcase for academics to upload their good work openly to all organizations. This not only allows content to get people enthused, but also starts sharing between organizations, getting people used to it. So you're suggesting a sort of a closed area first before it becomes fully open. Is this you, Simon, typing away here? It's not you. Oh, I thought you were typing and words were appearing, so I I thought it was. This is a remote contributor, is it? Thank you very much for that. That, That's that's an interesting point. Um, And then further comments. Real shame that OER isn't something widely adopted by all universities since really it can cost nothing but bring so many benefits. Perhaps all universities could throw a tenor in a hat and we sort this out. Yes, I've got the hat. Um, Let's stop focusing on open education resources and talk about open education and then one day we can just call it education and it will all be open. (laughs) Nod to Tim. (laughs) Right? Yes. I like that one. It's where it's heading, isn't it? Lovely. Okay. Right. Um, Just a little... Oh, yeah. I've not got much time. A little bit of time. If you can just do sort of a very quick sort of brainstormy session on the last document. Hopefully it's uh, editable. Um, Document three is on policy development. The the thinking here uh, is that um, the context in which we're we're working, you know, affects uh, the potential for sustainability. And without the right policies in place, whether it's in your institution or nationally, you're going to be uh, pushing a rock up uphill. So this is really about uh, asking you to think uh, what what would be what would we like to see next? To get a good policy in place, both within your institution uh, and nationally. And, and by policy, I'm thinking very generally. You know, it doesn't have to be a written policy. It can be you know a de facto one. It can be an accepted norm. That that you know could be a, a policy if if people. Uh, generally accept it. So uh, I'm going to suggest just 10 minutes uh, to have a very quick talk on this and and share ideas. Let's just uh, see what's come from uh, here and abroad um, under policy development and implementation. So what we were asking was what could, should happen next to get a good policy in place both within your institution and, and nationally. Uh, and to see it put into practice. Uh, Was that there already? Yes, there was there. Well, somebody's about to edit it, I see. Um, Not sure you can change the question. I think that's cheating. Um, Okay, as UK HEIs jostle to differentiate themselves from the competition, each could productively start with a high-level commitment to publish OER, which aligns with its USP e.g. the University of Northampton purports to be the entrepreneurship university. So all materials and resources relevant to entrepreneurship should be put up. This will align with its headline marketing strategy and strategic priorities. Such an approach could lead the charge in converting the mindset in the institution. What a brilliant idea. Who who put that up? I did. Um, Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> Could have gone either way, couldn't it? Um, yeah. No, I really, really like that idea because uh, that would be a, you know, a way to cook each in. You know, your, you know, you claim to be this. Why don't you, uh, you know, share what's so special about your approach? Yeah, that's a brilliant thought. Um, open as the default position and a open as the default position and a business case has to be prepared to justify why not open. Yeah, wonderful. Who was that? <laughs> Sorry, I, I oh. don't. Tim, yes, yes. No, that's that's great. And no more consent forms. <laughs> yes. Uh, stop OER from being a project-led development to becoming community-based. From the projects, I'm sure we could build a great community. Well, we yes, we want to do just just that, and I, I think that's that's true. I'll come back to to that in a minute. Um, aligning policies or practices among institutions already in consortia. Yes, has that been happening? Do you think at, at all already? You know, in terms of among the UK OER, do you think there's been uh, a tendency to to converge based on the shared experience? Don't know. Might 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 be happening already. I'm not sure. How about we don't have a policy and just keep it as a movement? Viva la revolution! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like that. Uh, thank you, anonymous uh, user 10. Um, it would be nice to see universities cease thinking of themselves purely as a business, perhaps a policy that universities aren't in competition with each other and that collaboration is highly important. Universities should be working to increase student satisfaction, not increase pounds and pence. Yeah, not sure that's a very easy sell to uh, university vice-chancellors. Um, yeah, I mean, few universities see themselves purely as a, as a business, but uh, for many, getting the business right is number one, and the rest is number two and subsequent, but that's good. Who's typing now? Is that, is that an in-the-room one? Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's not you, not you. Okay, well, if that's remote contribution, thank you. That's, that's excellent. Uh, RPL and credit transfer policies that allow learners to get credit for learning done informally using OER where applicable. Sorry, I said RPL. APL, I would call it. APEL, but anyway, it's called so many things, isn't it? Uh, getting, getting recognition, anyway, uh, for the learning you, you undertake. Um, has everyone in this um, seen the announcement by MIT of MITx yeah really interesting I think and and you know what what's either radical or rather um, squalid depending on your point of view um, <laughs> is the fact that it's not tied to MIT's normal credit system this is a parallel credit system um, it could be squalid because it's you know second class and, and sort of palming these poor OER students off with something uh, much less good than the real thing. But equally, it could be a recognition that what people want is recognition. They're, they don't care about, you know, what it's equivalent to. They want somebody to say, yes, well done, you've learnt 
what you set out to learn, you've achieved this, uh, we will, will note it. And, and who cares whether it's a new system or, or an existing one? So that's, that's rather interesting. And it's you know, slightly embarrassing here at the OU that MIT got there, there first and that, that we, didn't, we didn't do something like that. Um, if you take self-study from OERs to its logical extreme, students won't get practical experience. Universities could partner with professional associations, e.g. nursing, to get practical aspects of learning covered. That's a very interesting point, yes. Uh, we, we can get carried away with OER and think that you know, they can do everything, and of course they, they aren't uh, the same. You know, they're giving you something different from the uh, you know, on-campus experience, and in particular the practical side. So looking for ways to link the two in an intelligent way is is really important. Um, if you take self-study from OERs to its logical extreme, students won't... Uh, sorry, we just had that. Uh, government money for widening participation via OERs and related activities. Yes, government money is always nice. Um, government money education would be... You're getting awfully radical there. <laughs> um, Yes, <laughs> widening participation via OERs, that, that's, yeah, yeah, I mean, in a sense that also puts some of the onus back on us. Is it? You know, where's our evidence? What, what can we actually show in terms of uh, the effect of, of WP? I mean, we have some quite good anecdotal evidence uh, from this university that people who feel very tentative about higher education because they're not coming from somewhere with an experience of it in their, their family uh, find the ability to dip their toe in the water and try out a few things uh, through OER as a really good uh, way of overcoming their, their fear and apprehension. Uh, so I think it does, you know, it is part of why we have uh, the uh, student intake we have, which correlates almost entirely to the demographic profile of, of the country. I mean, we are, uh, you know, every category of uh, student is, is about, uh, about where it should be, r roughly, for the OU. Um, I was going to say more by luck than by judgment. I don't mean quite that, but, I mean, it's, it's uh, an indirect consequence of, of actions like, I think, our OER work that's produced that. So, there we go. Thank you very much. That was, that was really good exercise, and, and I, I, yeah, I didn't think it was going to work half as well as it did. So, so thank you for being, being guinea pigs with the, the method, and uh, well done. I, I did say I'd just finish off on, you know, a little bit on this uh, community question. Um, got into trouble for this uh, uh, in the last hour or so. Um, let me try to find a page. It's... isn't it? Okay, if you go to the school website, some of you may have seen this already. Um, uh, I just want to do the, the tablet thing of scrolling up, but it doesn't work on this. Um, 
As part of Open Education Week, we're encouraging as many people as possible to, to sign the, the commitment to, um, to being open. The commitment reads, I will, wherever possible, release the educational content I produce under an open license, and wherever I'm looking for, whenever I'm looking for resources for education, I will endeavor to seek out content with an open license. Um, we're using this to, uh, if you like, uh, law or, or find out who are the potential members of this open education community um, that certainly exists already. Um, and uh, SCORE, as I mentioned uh, briefly before, uh, is not going to continue beyond July when the funding runs out. Uh, but we are hoping that by then we will have established an open education group. Um, I said it's got into trouble. Uh, David Wiley has a research group in Bingham Young University called the Open Education Group, and he has drawn it to our attention. Uh, so I think almost certainly we will need to uh, change that name, PDQ. Uh, but for the moment it's called the, the Open well, Education Group. You want to fight? You want to fight David Wiley? <laughs> or not the, not the Wiley group, the unWiley group. <laughs> um, so do please, you know, uh, sign this up. And also by clicking in the yes, uh, keep me informed about Open Education Group activities. We will be coming back to everybody who's... Uh, click there. And the idea is not to be prescriptive at this stage as to just, you know, what this, this group will look like and how it will operate, but to then invite people to share their thoughts on what they'd like the, the group to do. Uh, a little group first met uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and we, uh, we identified quite a long list of things that we thought this, this group potentially could do and how it would operate. But we also felt it was really important that it wasn't something that, you know, went out there with a great long agenda already, but that we uh, tried to sort of draw together the de facto open education community and, and then took it, took it from there. So that's what we're, we're planning to do. Uh, we also have... Uh, a conference coming up uh, next month in Cambridge, Cambridge 2012, which is joint with the Open Courseware Consortium. Um, and uh, we'll probably have a, a little launch uh, event for what has up till now been called the Open Education Group, but by the time of the launch will be something else. Um, there, so that's another uh, thing to come along to if you're still interested in finding out and... Uh, uh, engaging more with the open education community. But do please, you know, if you agree with the statement, please sign up. Score site, yes, you'll find on the score site. Um, and and anyone who's joining us uh, remotely, uh, please just visit the score website, just go to uh, www.opened.ac.uk and you'll find the link to the uh, statement of commitment fairly prominent there. It'd be good if everybody who's participated today uh, were to sign it. Um, any, any last questions, points, observations from anyone here? 
Thank you all very much. You've been a great group. Thank you.